The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 174 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. Uh, Before we get into this week's episode, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, It is that time of year again. It is summertime, and every year during summer and winter, we take three weeks off, and uh, we are at that time to take a vacation. And I wasn't sure if we were going to, because this year we, you know, we had ended the show. We brought it back in March. But uh, we have a lot going on right now, so we will be uh, off for about three weeks. There will be no new episodes. Highly suggest that uh, you get back and maybe catch up on some of the older episodes that you've missed. Uh, But then we will be back. As I mentioned, uh, I do have a new producer for the show and a new social media manager. We've not had any time to meet together and uh, spend some time mapping out the show and what we're going to do together. So I'm really excited about getting that done over the next few weeks, and then we will be back in three weeks. Okay, this week on the show, my guest Richard Culotta is a just brilliant, amazing guy. He is the CEO of an organization called ISTE that uh, specializes in technology in the classroom. He's also served in various capacities in government, And just an amazing man. I learned so much from this conversation. He has a new book out. He's going to tell us all about it. It is just fantastic. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, there is a great work. But what is it? It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And my guest today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast is doing such amazing work to protect our children and to give tools to parents. Plus, he's got an amazing backstory himself, Richard Culotta. Welcome. Hey, Sean. Great to be here. I'm so excited. I'm super excited to talk to you. Tell us where you're, uh, where you're talking to us from. Well, I'm uh, in Washington, D.C. area, actually Northern Virginia, just right over the line from D.C. Such a beautiful, beautiful area. So... We have a lot to talk about. Richard has a new book coming out that everybody is going to want to read. Uh, But before we jump into all that, Richard, we got to get to know you. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I I grew up in Rhode Island, Um, not a place where there were many members of the church. So it was a pretty small, uh, pretty lonely life as a youth growing up there Uh, and uh, spent time there and then ended up. uh, Were you raised in the church? Uh, My mom joined the church. She met the missionaries when I was um, nine years old. Mm. So I was a nice gift to a set of missionaries at some point. (laughs) Nine. It's a pretty good age to be. It's a great, it's a great age. So that's what I joined the church. Technically I'm a convert to the church, but you know, not, not, not really. Uh, And so, uh, so yeah, uh, she was, I was a a single mom. I was uh, growing up with her. She was teaching at the university of Rhode Island and so we, uh, you know, had fun growing up in, in the Ocean State. And then after that, I um, ended up uh, doing, doing a little bit of college in Rhode Island, went on a mission to Mexico, uh, and then came back and uh, finished up at, uh, at BYU. And by a weird turn of events, ended up back in the D.C. area, which is where I, I still am. So talk a little bit about uh, about growing up in the church in Rhode Island. I think you might be you might be our first guest from Rhode Island. 
I mean, we've had a lot of guests, so I have to rack my brains. But but uh, you having seen BYU and being familiar with the Utah scenario or generally the West. Yeah, I grew up in California. Yeah, yeah. we were spread out. But Rhode Island is a special kind of spread out for members of the church. So what was that experience like? And then also, what was it like becoming a member of the church at nine? You probably remember your first few weeks at church and getting involved. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's very different. What, what you have to understand is um, there. So, so the entire state um, was not even one stake, right? So our stake was the entire state of Rhode Island and half of the state of Connecticut. Right? No so, kidding. So you need to grok that for a second, right? Where, where is, you know, in Utah, like three blocks and you're in another stake. And so <laughs> it was just a very different experience. It was it was a half an hour drive just to church in our little, you know, tight, tiny little ward where, where I grew up. Uh, so it was it was a very different feel. And, and I'll tell you, I actually um, and this is, a you know, maybe maybe an interesting story. And if it's too long, you just edit this right out. But uh, when I was growing up, I had never been west of the Mississippi. So the idea of go uh, certainly the idea of going to BYU like with that was not even ever on the radar. It's just this weird school where everybody walked around in shirts and ties all the time, right? That's kind of what I thought. <laughs> and so uh, I was happily at the University of Rhode Island. I went on a mission, and I was going to come back and finish at the University of Rhode Island. And while I was on my mission, my mom sent me a note and said, "By the way, uh, I, I got a job at BYU, so I'm moving to Utah." Uh, and I um, I sort of you know, grumpily threw in an application to BYU, this school that I never wanted to go to, right? You know, this weird Mormon school that I didn't want to go to. Um, but I was so good. I mean, I was too good. I had two years of college under my belt and I was a return missionary. Like I was kind of too good for this school anyway. Right. But I was going to do it because my mom was there. Uh, long story short, the Lord uh, knew that I needed to be taught a lesson. And I, uh, while still on my mission, I got a rejection letter from BYU. Whoa. And I was, I was, I was ticked. Because I had two years of college, good grades. I had completed a worthy mission. And I was walking around my apartment being grumpy and grouchy about it. And, and my companion said, well, that's funny for a school that you didn't want to go to so badly. You're sure upset that they didn't accept you. And uh, and and I really had to stop and reset and, and sort of understand that this was a gift. This was a, a major gift to be able to go there. And I, I frankly didn't deserve it. Wow. And in, in a weird turn of events, uh, I, I applied to go to summer school. You can go to summer school there without being admitted to, to school so that I could at least spend some time with my mom after being away for two years. And uh, somebody at, uh, at this summer school program at BYU saw my transcript, uh, saw, saw my background and said, whoa, guy, there's, there was a mistake. And they actually called over to the admissions office and said, you, you, he should have been admitted. And, uh, and, and I ended up getting a, a call back and they said, you know, there's the, I, my, my mission president actually made the announcement. We were in a, in a zone meeting and he said, hey, and, and congratulations to Elder Collada who has been accepted to BYU. And I went up afterwards, I said, president, I, I'm sorry. I don't know if you heard, but I actually wasn't. I was, I was rejected. He said, no, no, they called me and you've been, you've been accepted to BYU. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, I never from that moment on took for granted the opportunity to be on that campus. Oh, that's awesome. And it was a complete change. And if that hadn't happened, if I hadn't had that rejection, I would not have, I would not have recognized the gift that it was. And, and so I, and from that time on, and man, I was the first, if I ever heard anybody complaining about being at BYU, I would be the first one to say, you are welcome to give your seat to somebody else who'd rather be here. Right? <laughs> but, but that, that level, that resetting of, of kind of my expectations, I think was a really important lesson for me having grown up in Rhode Island and not really understanding what a, what an amazing place uh, uh, this was. So Rhode Island to Mexico 
to BYU. That is quite a path. Oh, it's about as culture shocky as you can get on each one of those. I mean, honestly, I I had this freak out moment when I was landing in Utah to go to the MTC because somebody had buzzed all the trees down. Right. And I was like, was there a big earthquake? Like what happened? There are no trees. And, uh, you know, somebody kind of after looking at me kind of strangely said, no, I mean, that's, you know, there, that's how it is. I'd never seen a place that looked like that. Uh, but, uh, but no, it was, um, it was a great experience. One of the opportunities I had, again, I feel so lucky. I, I, I just, um, have had some wonderful opportunities. And one of them is I got to serve for seven months in a place in Northern Mexico called Colonia Juarez, which Mm. some people know as the Mormon colonies. Colonies, sure. And, uh, it was just a fascinating, it, it is, you know, I was, I was supposed to be there to, to teach and, and I, and I, and I hope I did, but it's where I learned uh, what families were supposed to be like. Mm. There, there's just a, such an amazing family culture, such a, such a unique, um, you know, community that's been created there. And, uh, and, and I just, I look back on that and I think that's just one of the, to this day, it's where, where I draw a lot of the, the strength that, for how I create a culture of what my family should look like. Yeah, beautiful. So you come to BYU. Did you know what you wanted to study? No. In fact, I at one point, one of my um, guidance counselors in uh, you know exasperation said, look, if you switch your major two more times, you'll have done every one of them at least once. <laughs> right. Um, which says a lot about just how I am in general. I just I, I don't like getting pegged. I don't like getting put into a into a box. And so, no, I, I was um, a communications major at one point, a business major at one point, a music major at one point, a uh, graphic design major at one point. Anyway, a number number of other ones in between there, but um, I've always been drawn to uh, to teaching, to education, uh, and I, uh, I I felt like uh, there was there was some work that I needed to do in that space, and so I ended up landing on um, sort of dual majoring. I uh, graduated in Spanish and in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, my plan was to go and and become a Spanish teacher. That was that was what I was going to do. Awesome. Uh- We've had guests on one of my favorite, one of my favorite descriptions from a guest was he said, uh, I left BYU single, which means I was a menace to society. How was your, uh, <laughs> how was your social experience with BYU? Yeah, well, I didn't leave BYU single, uh, okay. so it, for whatever that's worth, but that's, you know, much more credit to a, a, a beautiful uh, girl named uh, Chandra Baird that I happened to meet uh, along the way than, than any skill or talent that I had. Um, I was in a, in a ward and became um, uh, friends with this guy who just recently came back from his mission, and then one day his, uh, his sister came and, and joined our student ward. Uh, and I, I didn't realize it was his sister. I remember leaning over and going, wow, who is that? Like, she's, she's, she's amazing. Who is this girl? And so, uh, fortunately he had the sense not to, not to choke me, strangle me right there, but we ended up, uh, building a friendship. And then a a number of years later, I, uh, was able to convince his sister to marry me. Yeah. So you guys got married while you were at BYU? Yes. I was at, at that point in a master's, my master's program at BYU and, uh, yeah. Gotcha. What did you end up getting your master's in? In educational psychology. Mm, awesome. That gives you such a broad, cool, like a uh, toolbox to work with people. See, now this is starting to make sense for what, what we're going to talk about in a little bit, which is your new book. That all yeah. makes sense together. So <laughs> it, it is, done- but I will tell you, it is, there are, you know, I, there, there aren't a whole lot of people that have one foot solidly in like the tech space and one foot solidly in the education space. And, and I think that, that weird, you know, line that I, I've sort of walked between those two worlds is part of why uh, these topics are 
you know, resonate with me, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. It's awesome. It's great. Um, so you end up leaving BYU. Where'd you guys go from there? So, um, I, uh, had a really interesting opportunity, uh, at the end of my program to go and work for the federal government. And, you know, like the government, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, it, it was after 9-11. And um, I, I remember, you know, reading my kind of my email one day and, and you know, there was one message that said, uh, come, you know, open a bank account with your cousin who's the king of Malawi and you can split $10 million. And then the next email was, you know, like buy cheap prescription meds for free if you click here or whatever. And then the third one was, come work for the CIA. And I went, oh, right. Yep. Spam, spam, spam. Well, turns out one of the three of them was not spam. Uh, and, and it happened to be that the CIA recruited me to help them rethink and redesign learning uh, in the in the agency after 9-11. So if you if you remember from the 9-11 report or any of that stuff, one of the one of the dings was that the 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 training experiences um, were not set up in a way that were helping with collaboration, helping people put the dots together. Uh, and so I was brought out. I was recruited to help rethink and redesign the learning experience at the CIA. Wow. So where did you move to for that? Was that Virginia then? Northern Virginia. That's where we moved yeah. to. Yep. And so what was that experience like? Uh, it was amazing. I can't tell you anymore or else the whole rest of the show will have to be censored. But um, <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it was a fascinating experience. It gave me um, so much uh, insight and, and respect for the the processes and people that go on to keep us safe every day. I think most of us just have no idea how how the, the level of sort of threats and attacks that are happening, uh, especially as we get into a more of a digital world and, and an crazy uh, talented group of people that are working behind the scenes uh, who, who really get no credit when things go right. And, and only when things go wrong, is there ever, ever a mention. And so it was really a neat opportunity for me as, as really a, an educator and technologist to sort of get a behind the scenes look for a number of years at, at this world uh, and have a, a great appreciation for the work that happens there. We've had several guests on the show who have talked about going to collaborative workspace uh, where over the course of, and it, it doesn't seem to matter what the industry is. We've had several guests who have talked about how the Latter-day Saints tend to find each other, <laughs> whether it's just, Hey, it's obvious you're a Latter-day Saint by your family photo in front of a temple or just, Hey, you're Mormon, right? Hey, did you know Bob's a Mormon? Like everybody else knows. And so they like force you to be friends. Did you find there was a community? Oh, sure. Oh yeah. We had a whole group. Yeah. We actually had lunches periodically and uh, everybody would uh, get together. And oh, it was a blast. It, it, we could always, uh, always sniff each other out. I'll tell you in, in the, in the CIA, uh, there is a, uh, a large group of, of members of the church in part because in order to work there, you have to be honest. You got to be able to pass a polygraph. You can't have any sort of alcohol or drug or substance, you know, addictions because you won't be able to pass uh, that. And and languages are, are valued. So like right there, those are three three boxes <laughs> that members of the church can often check pretty easily. So uh, so yes, there there's quite a quite a nice nice group of members of the church in the intelligence community. So cool. Uh, how long were you at the CIA? So I was there for about five years, uh, helped rethink and, and, and redesign and use some new technologies to help have more, more, more effective learning practices. And then uh, had the opportunity to go work in the U.S. Senate uh, for a little bit on education policy. 
Um, and and from there was uh, appointed by President Obama to lead the Office of Education Technology for the uh, Department of Ed. I like how you throw that in there as if it's, and then we went to lunch at Denny's. You know, you were appointed by the president. It's a presidential appointment. And so so tell us a little bit about that. I mean, first of all, I want to I want to quickly go back to the Senate. Were you working for a senator working on policy? I was working for Senator Patty Murray uh, mm. on on education policy. Yeah, fantastic. So then, how did this lead to this presidential appointment? So I was, you know, at the time I was doing some really interesting work on on policy around uh, using technology to improve learning experiences. Uh, there weren't a lot of people on the Hill that were doing that. And I had, I had a boss, a great boss, Senator Murray, who was very interested in that uh, work. And so she was supportive of it. Uh, but then we sort of got to a moment where where there was a bit of a uh, a log jam, as often happens, and and I realized that there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of legislation that was going to get through, uh, and uh, so I was thinking, do I you know I really do I do I want to stay? Do I want to work somewhere where I can where I can have a bit more of a of an impact? Uh, and uh, I had had some good conversations with uh, some people who were working on the Obama team. So, you know, I got a call uh, one day and, and somebody uh, from the White House wanted to talk to me about some opportunities. And uh, one thing led to the next. And uh, before you knew it, I was uh, working just a couple blocks down the street at the U.S. Department of Ed. So the 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 Office of Educational Technology, I would I have never heard of it. And I would assume we have a lot of listeners who have never heard of it. Tell us a little bit about what that office does. And then also, how long has that office been around? Yeah, so the office has been around for uh, about uh, 20 years. And um, the interesting thing is that the office had a a role that was very different before um, the time when I was there. Uh, And previously, there was a lot of work to create a a plan and a vision for how technology could be used effectively, certainly to review um, grants and funding that was being given out to states and to other organizations to make sure that they were, if they were, if technology was involved, it was being used in in a, uh, you know, an appropriate way. Um, But, but during the time that I was there, President Obama uh, was was really frustrated about the state of connectivity in our schools. Mm. And he said, you can walk in to any Starbucks around the country and have free broadband while you're waiting in line. And yet most of the schools in our country uh, didn't have Wi-Fi at the time, mm. certainly didn't have broadband. And so the charge that he gave me and the team, right, it wasn't only me, but, but our team, uh, was to get all schools connected to Wi-Fi broadband, uh, which was a, a huge task, right? I mean, there's 100,000 schools in the country, just, just to, to, to level set that. And the data that we had uh, on those schools about connectivity was, was, was terrible, right? You, we you'd people that would call around and say, hey, how's your, how's your broadband? And some secretary would be like, oh, it's slow. And they'd write down, you know, broadband is slow. Like you can't solve any, you can't like calculate how to close broadband gaps with like somebody saying it's feels slow. Uh, so we had to do a huge data collection and actually get the the accurate uh, uh, broadband, you know, the the signal strength from all the schools. We we did it by crowdsourcing it. We actually asked parents and students. We created a little, you know that you know those like 
speed test apps that you can do to see yeah, how fast sure. you're doing. We made one for schools and we, we, we knew where the geolocation, you know, the, the, the location of the schools. And so we made this little app and we told all the parents and all the kids all, all around, we said, hey, when you're in school, just go test it, test it in the morning, test it, you just test the heck out of it. And we got all of that data. It was, all it was, was a speed test. There was no, no information about kids or anything. It was just how fast it was and, and which school it was. And for the first time, we had a picture of how uh, far behind our connectivity was. And, uh, you know, we were going around saying that U.S. schools were 100% connected. And it, and it turns out 100% of the offices of U.S. schools were connected, but only about 12% of classrooms were, were connected. This is like 10 years ago now, right? 12%. Just to be clear, 12%, right. Uh, you know, maybe there was a computer lab somewhere, but in the classroom, there, there was usually no connectivity. And if it was, it was too slow to, to, to do anything. Uh, and so with that data, we were then able to say, okay, now we actually can figure out what it would cost, what it would take to get all schools connected to, to broadband. And that's the work that we ended up doing while I was there. That is incredible. Is there a specific memory, whether it was meeting somebody or somewhere you got invited to go to? Was there, is there something that stands out to you that you kind of pinch yourself and go, I can't believe I got to be a part of that? Or was it more of an office job? No, I, I routinely thought I absolutely do not belong here in most of the places that, that, I, was, <laughs> that I was in. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to think of a single thing. It was a lot of, of meeting really smart people uh, who, were, who were trying to uh, help, help make the world a better place. And, uh, and some really fantastic leadership uh, trying to help make a difference. And I just, I felt really grateful to be a part of it. Um, That's awesome. Honestly, I think the people that I feel most fortunate to have connected with, uh, yeah, I met, a, I met a lot of famous people. Um, the people that I felt most fortunate to connect with were uh, teachers and school leaders around the country. I got to visit schools all the time and I got to just see the, the like ridiculously amazing creativity and talent uh, from these people who were just completely unsung heroes. The, I, I mean, I respected you. I was a teacher, right? I, it was not like I did not respect teachers when I walked into this role. But but after getting a chance to really understand and see um, the the work that uh, that teachers and school leaders were doing, I I, I just uh, completely completely uh, amazed. That's great. How long were you in the office? So I was there for about six years. Mm. Uh, and and served for for about six years, and then um, after that went up and served as the chief innovation officer for my home state of Rhode Island. Chief innovation officer. See, these are these are titles I'm not even aware of. Well, I don't know that anybody. I think I was the first one. I, I actually think I was. There's now several states that have created them after me, but I think I was the first chief innovation officer in the country. Uh, and and my job was to just try to find ways to make government better. There's a lot of ways, by the way. We could use that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could use that. Was it surprising to you when you took that role at some of the antiquated ways things were done? Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, absolutely. No, no. It was. And, and, and I come out of working in the federal government, by the way, and I can give you a whole list of kind of, you know, crazy, crazy uh, ideas there. But, but again, uh, it, it was one of those situations where there were just you know, good people trying really hard to, to do good things in, uh, in public service, but really tough challenges. And uh, we have not done a good job of recruiting uh, entrepreneurs into government. 
And, mm. and I know that sounds weird. I know you might say, well, of course not. We don't. But, but I actually started a big campaign while I was there, uh, what, I, what I call public sector entrepreneurship. We actually really need creative entrepreneur type people coming into public sector roles. And, uh, and, and that was um, some, some of the work that, that we did because we found that when, when we were able to um, take sort of non-traditional approaches to solve tough problems, uh, you could make amazing things happen, right? But 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 it it really does take a lot of a lot of creativity. Mm. Fast, I'm so fascinated by your career path. Like each of these roles just sounds so very interesting. Uh, you finished up at your time at Rhode Island. Where'd you go from there? So after that, I um, had there's a, a great organization that I've been part of as a teacher years before uh, called ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education, uh, and they are uh, here in the in the DC area. Uh, and where my family still was, I was commuting back and forth through Rhode Island. So that was, wow. that was uh, tough on our, our family. And so I was looking to get back to the area and, uh, they reached out and said, Hey, we're looking for a, a CEO. Would you consider taking on this role? Um, and, uh, and we had some conversations and I said, you know, I'm really, uh, concerned about how we're preparing, uh, parents, teachers, students to be effective in this very, you know, increasingly digital world that we live in. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know that we're doing a good enough job uh, of it, and uh, and so if that can be a focus of the work uh, under my watch, then then I'd I'd be very interested. And uh, the board was was very open to that, and so I took on a, a tenure there. Now almost uh, I guess about four and a half years ago, uh, and that's been our focus: is how do we help teachers, students, parents really um, really be prepared for this this exciting, risky, very different world that we live in. And in a very small world, which we talked about uh, right before we got on, uh, ISTE has a big conference. I mean, there are a lot of small conferences as well, yep. but there's one big conference every year that I have had the pleasure to attend three times. Uh, I know it's so cool that work. you have that connection. I didn't, we didn't know that before this. This this we call. had no idea until we got on it. When I read it, I went, "Wait a minute! I go to ISTE." So uh, there's a trade show where vendors set up and show off what uh, their stuff is in the classroom. We do a lot of work in the classroom. So I've gotten to go to the trade show three times and I think it's just awesome. So we have that connection, it's, which is fun. It is, it is a fun connection. It's a great, uh, a great event. I hope to see you there in person soon. Yeah, it's, it's a great organization too that does tremendous work and a lot of teachers and IT professionals in education come through the show and I so enjoyed uh, each time I was there. So that's Really neat. Uh, we're going to jump into the book from here because we're kind of caught up on your career. But yeah. I want to talk a little bit about you said you were commuting, which wasn't great for your family. Again, this is yeah. something I don't know, but I'm going to guess that your family grew to be more than just your wife. So, yes. Yeah, so I have uh, four kids. Uh, my oldest is uh, 16, just turned 16 this last week. And then my youngest is uh, eight years old. And so and then two in between. So, yes, they keep us uh, they keep us very busy. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, all of these experiences lead to now, now you've completely, I mean, talk about uh, just building up your credentials for this book. I mean, I can't imagine anybody more qualified. Talk about the book. So, so I have to say, and, and I appreciate that it's very kind of you to, to think that I'm qualified for this, but, but I, I will say, so yes, I have a background in technology, a background in education. I have multiple degrees in education, but but the the reason for this book uh, really came from my personal experience as a parent of these four kids, and I uh, knew that we I wanted to create a culture in our family of using technology in a healthy way, 
and and I, and you know again this is my career I've studied it and yet I I didn't feel like I knew the right way to do it in my in my family I could help get schools connected I could help train teachers I I didn't know how to create that that culture and so I started looking around uh, at the you know books that were available out there and there's this kind of you know, fear-based approach that you see in a lot of books. You know, there's books that are called things like the boogeyman in your pocket and like, you know, how phones have made our kids stupid. I mean, these are actually names of, of books. Wow. And, and there's this fear and, and there's this, there's this sort of idea of like, well, technology is just, just evil and, and you should just be scared of it. And there, and there are of course risks with, with technology, but that wasn't the experience that we had, right? We had an experience in our family that technology was actually inherently good, but we needed to know how to set some parameters and how to set some, you know, boundaries and how to make it work right. Uh, and, and, and as I looked around, I was having trouble finding, um, advice, right. Other than the, like, just, just be scared, uh, which, you know, isn't helpful. <laughs> right. And so I started talking with parents. I started talking with teachers. I started really doing some, some interviewing, and I found some fascinating things. Um, one of the things that I found is that there are there are two uh, fundamental flaws to the way that we approach preparing kids to be healthy virtual people. Hmm. And 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 I'll share them with you right, right now. You can still buy the book and read more about them. But I'll, but I'm going to give away uh, you know the, the premise here, and that is um, that the conversations that I was hearing both in schools and homes were entirely negative. And so they were, it was what I call the don'ts conversation. So when we talk about how you prepare your kids to be, you know, safe and effective online, I get the list of don'ts, right? Don't, uh, you know, don't be a jerk. Don't share your password. Don't post inappropriate pictures. Don't look at inappropriate pictures. Don't, 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 don't. Uh, and and there are, are some problems with that. One problem with that, of course, is it's not a very compelling message uh, to, to <laughs> sure. a kid. But, but the other problem is that these skills, the skills of being an effective human in a digital world, they're complex skills, right? These aren't, these, these, these take practice and, and, and you can't practice not doing something. Yeah. I, you know, oh, I, I yeah. often talk my kids our, our kids uh, play the piano and, and you can't learn to play the piano by being given a list of notes not to play. Like it doesn't work that way. You have to practice playing the right notes over and over and over again. The same is true when it comes to using technology in a healthy way. So, so that's the first problem is that our, our this negative, you know, uh, uh, sort of rhetoric around around not doing things um, doesn't help. Uh, and so I often say, you know, being a good digital citizen is a list of do's, not a list of don'ts. Mm, right. Uh, so that's the first problem that I uncovered. The second problem that I that I uncovered is the fact that we are as a as a society way over focused on online safety. Mm. Now, now it sounds weird for a second because when I say that, somebody's gonna go, wait, you don't care about online safety? Of course I care about online safety. It is incredibly important. But online safety is just the first step. And, and I mentioned I have a 16-year-old daughter where she's learning to drive right now. We're, we're doing the driver practice, right? And uh, when we get in the car, the first thing we do is put on the seatbelt, right? There's no question we're going to put on the dang seatbelt. We don't, we don't, it's table stakes. We don't move the car until the seatbelts are on. <laughs> but the vast majority of our driving practice is talking about where are we going? How do we get there? How do we navigate? Who are we going with? Ooh. How do we handle situations that come up on the road? Uh, how do we make sure we're using the car appropriately? How do we handle our uh, emotions if somebody cuts in front of us or gets mad at us, right? Those are all of the conversations that we talk about. And, and you know, it, it would almost be like the way we, the way we uh, prepare our kids right now to, to, for the virtual world is, is, is like, you know, over-focusing on the seatbelt. 
like if we get in the car and we're like, well, here's the seatbelt. Let's put the seatbelt on. Let's talk for three hours about the seatbelt. And then we'll talk some more about the seatbelt. Like, no, just put on the dang seatbelt. And then let's move on to the real stuff, which is how are you an effective human in a virtual space? And, and it turns out if we can make that shift, if we can talk about the broader skills in, in a maybe a sort of a bit of irony, it, it actually ends up being a safer experience for our kids. I am uh, a good amount older than you are. I remember being a Sunday school teacher and our rule was no phones in the class. And so I had a basket. They all had to turn it in. And then all of a sudden it became, no, wait a minute. We'd like you to have it in the class. Now it's required. I mean, they're going to, you know, church websites and they're, they're looking up videos and whatever. It's, you almost can't participate in young men, young women's much less school and life and work and everything else without this. So I think that's a really smart approach. I mean, in the book, I talk about how, uh, you know, a number of years ago, the virtual world, if you will, was uh, kind of like our vacation home, right? We, we kind of go out and hang out there, have some entertainment there. But but when something real happened, something important was happening, you'd, it would happen in the physical world, you know, certainly a, a wedding or school or, uh, you know, you, you, you name whatever the whatever the, the thing is, right? That would be in the, in the work, right? Would be the, that would be in the physical world. Well, we've seen that even before COVID. COVID has certainly accelerated it, but we've seen this this shift to the point where uh, we really are dual citizens, and and some of the most important life moments happen in virtual spaces now. And so, uh, so we really do need to be very thoughtful about how do we prepare uh, us, all of us. This applies to adults as well, but particularly to young people for uh, for those 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 virtual spaces and how to how to leverage these tools in ways that can really enrich their lives and make them better people. Uh, but but again, that takes that takes practice. And there's some there's some things that we uh, th- th- there's some you know approaches that we need to rethink as parents if we're going to do that effectively. So as you were doing research on this book, were there things that really surprised you data-wise, like or, or things or perceptions that people had? What surprised you while you were writing the book? Um, wow, there's a number of things. There's actually a, a lot that, that did, which again is interesting because I've spent you know my, my career in this space. Um, one of them was uh, learning a bit more about this idea of, of screen time. And limiting, you know, often we limit, I, I used to do this too, we would we'd set these screen time limits uh, for our kids as a way to find, you know, some, some sort of balance. In fact, it's still probably the number one question I get from parents when I speak is, well, my kid is this old, what's the appropriate number of hours per day on screens? And, and the problem is, that is actually a really um, kind of destructive approach. Mm. And, and I know it comes with good intention. So I know if, if your parents, like I said, I used to ask the question, I used, if you, if you've asked that question, if you, if you use that with your kids and now you're like, who is this guy, you know, saying that my screen time approach <laughs> is wrong, but, but, but just bear with me for one second on this one. So one of the things that we, that we know in the, that's important to note is that most of the research that was done on, on the screen time idea was done on television. And television is a very passive, uh, you know, experience. And so, so yes, if you are asking, is there how how much time should your kids sit in front of a a TV screen all day? Uh, very little. I don't know. Whatever the smallest amount is that you can get away with, right? Like <laughs> that's the answer there. But 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 these devices that we have, the the, the they're highly interactive. It's a very different experience. Uh, and so most most of that screen time research, frankly, just doesn't doesn't apply. And you've seen the, the U.S. Department of Education, you've seen UNESCO, you've seen a whole bunch of organizations have now been revising the, those guidelines. 
but the more important thing, other than the fact that it was, you know, kind of on research that didn't didn't necessarily apply, the, the more important thing to understand is as soon as we do that, we teach our kids that all technology, all apps have the same value. And that is absolutely the mm. complete opposite message that we want to be teaching. What we want to be teaching is saying, no, no, there are activities that you could have almost unlimited amount of time on in a virtual space. If 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 the activity is talking to a, a grandparent over FaceTime, if the activity is studying the scriptures, if the activity is, is writing or creating or making a movie, or those are activities that have more value. If it is playing a luck-based repetitive game, then, then no, that is of much less value and much less worth. Uh, and even within that category, games themselves, there are some games that, that you know, five minutes is, is a waste of time. Uh, but there are some very creative, very interesting games. Our kids you play Minecraft, which is like basically a digital version of Legos uh, and very, very creative, very interesting. You can design whole computers in Minecraft. Those are our are, are activities that have more value. And so the point that we need to be teaching is not there's this time from, you know, seven to eight where anything you use is fine, right? What we need to be teaching is there are a whole variety of things that you can do on these screens. And some of them could be done for, for you know, lots and lots of time and still have good balance. And some of them really don't deserve much time at all. Um, much like, if, if I can give a, an example, much like how we teach kids to eat in, in healthy food, right? We don't have food time. Could you imagine if we're like, from seven to eight is food time and you can eat all the crap you want in the closet, all the candy bars and <laughs> chips and like whatever, but, but at 801, all the food time goes away. No, of course not. Right. Like in wow. our family, we teach that you can have fruit and water whenever you want, but then there's going to be some, some, some more substantial meals three times a day. And occasionally we're going to break out the chips and the Twinkies, but we're only going to do that sparingly. And if you've had other good food, wow. so, so that's the idea. That's this. And, and that was probably a longer answer than you were hoping for, but that Not idea at all. Of shifting to going yeah. to balance and teaching our kids that different digital activities have different value that's what we need to go for. And this idea of how much screen time should my kid have actually teaches the opposite of that. This is really fascinating. So uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, I think a lot of parents can use. Tell us the title of the book. So the book is called Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. Mm. And it's available everywhere. It's at, at, at Amazon, at your indie book publisher. It's published by HBR Press. And uh, my goal, even though there was a lot of research that went into it, is to be super practical. I basically wrote the book that I wanted <laughs> when I was struggling to figure out how to create the right, right culture. And, and actually, given the, the audience that we're, we're talking to here, I'll tell you that um, I took inspirations. A number of you have, uh, maybe you've read this um, uh, Clay Christensen's book. Uh, about the you know your, the family uh, culture uh, and creating the right family family culture. It was called how how I will measure my life. Uh, and 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 I sort of said that's the 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 idea is I want to help people create a healthy digital culture in their families. And, and so it's very practical. Lots of really um, uh, I think easy to use uh, advice to help get a good balance between how technology can not just not take over your life but actually support the type of family you want to create. Yeah. And I, you know, we've had guests on before too. I had on a, a guest who she said, our goal with our children should be to raise functional adults. And I, I am afraid that maybe with some of my kids, I did this where it was, everything's a restriction. 
Hey, you're 18. All the restrictions are gone, but I've done nothing to prepare you to be 18 and to have the restrictions gone. You know, it's back to your driving analogy. It's like, I'm going to raise you driving go-karts and now you're 18 here, are the keys to a Corvette. Good luck. Yeah. You know, and, and our kids might not be equipped and there are plenty of dangers. I want to make sure it comes across that, that you're not saying that, that there aren't plenty of dangers, but taking a holistic approach really helps our kids to process and understand the difference between the both. Yes. And, and to be clear, so I actually start the book, like the first chapter of the book it call, is called Our Digital Dysfunctions. And, mm. and so I, I felt it was important to lay out the fact that we, we, are, we are a mess right now when it comes to how we are using technology as a society. We cannot tell the difference between true and false information in virtual spaces. We are getting taken advantage of in both from financial to emotional, all kinds of ways, uh, because we are not able to, to distinguish true and false information uh, on online. We have uh, data, our personal data that is all over the place because we don't know how to, how to manage that. So like, I am not coming into this saying that there are no risks, right? There are absolutely risks and there are dangers. The, the challenge is that we just have to shift this. We just have to shift the narrative because if we are, again, as we were talking about before, if we just say, here are the things to watch out for, good. I can be scared of those things, but what do I do? What are the actions that I can take to, to be a healthier, better, safer person in a, in a virtual space? And even, um, you know, it, it, it's even beyond me. I think a lot, another challenge that I found is that a lot of the conversations are very selfish. It's how to protect you and yourself and make sure you don't get... But, but there's not a lot of conversation right now in our families and schools about how do we help create a, a kinder, uh, healthier, uh, safer space for others, right? Mm. And, and that's another shift that we have to take is, is it's not okay to just make sure that you're not getting taken advantage of under virtual space. We need to be ambassadors for good in a world where, where we may understand, where our kids may know better. One of the stats that I saw as is, 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 is doing some of the research is uh, uh, nearly 90% of kids have watched uh, another kid get uh, bullied or abused in some way, shape or form in a virtual space. And most of them have done nothing about it. Mm. And it's not because they're bad kids. It's not because it's because they don't know, they haven't practiced what to do in those moments. And so those are the those are the things that we need to talk about as we shift this narrative to a positive narrative. A positive narrative doesn't mean rose-colored glass and everything's good. A positive narrative means there are actual positive actions that you can take, proactive actions that you can take to make the virtual space around you better and healthier. Uh, I love this. I love this approach. It's very positive. You know, it's funny because I wasn't sure, us not having met before, I wasn't sure if there was going to be a whole lot of Okay, here are all the don'ts. I was kind of ready for this book, but I love this positive approach. I think it gives a lot of hope for me as a parent with still a 17-year-old at home. I also think, you know, I've talked to parents, uh, and I'm unfortunately thinking of one friend in particular who said, oh, we put this app on their phone. It takes care of everything. Uh, it doesn't, first of all, that app may or may not take care of everything. Secondly, his kid's friends have plenty of devices without the app on it. Kids have access. But third, that app doesn't address anything that you're talking about. I have a whole chapter in the book just on this one thing. It's that it's that important. And it's this idea, again, one of the things that I found as I was, as I was doing the research for the book was um, 
there is a huge over-reliance on uh, technical protections, mm. right? So I have this app, I have this filter, I have this, again, like you said, first of all, there, are a, there, there isn't a kid I can't put in front of you that can't get around your filter. So let's just be clear about that. Uh, but, <laughs> right. but the more important thing is uh, that when there is a situation, and there will be one, whether it's in another, you know, again, at somebody else's house or when they leave your house, if, if, the, if the only attempt that we've made uh, to, to have them be prepared for this world is by filtering the bad, uh, we've left them defenseless. And so, so yeah. we really, and, and I'm not saying don't put a fil- put on a filter, of course, like let's, let's put on a filter, but, but that does not check the box as a parent for like, oh, my kid is now good to be a healthy digital citizen. Yeah. We have to help them with those skills. And, and here's one, let me just give one simple suggestion. Please. And I, and I, I give an example of this in, in the book, um, create a device in our family. We have a device use agreement with all of our kids mm. and it's just a contract. And the contract says, here are some things that we want you to to avoid, you know, some risks to avoid and what to do if you have them. And then here are some things that we expect you to do with the technology that we're providing you, right? You're using my internet connection that I'm paying for and a device that I've kind of paid for, right? Uh, uh, Here's some things that we expect. We expect you to capture family moments. We want you to capture videos of, of key moments, pictures, and help to curate our family history, right? That's one example. We say, we want you to use it to stay in touch with family members who may be in other parts of the country. And we want you to use it as a tool to learn new things and to tell us about the things that you're learning, right? So this is a contract that we make up and we all sign it. We do it every year and we renew it every year on their birthday. And so this is a way that we can help our kids set the expectations for here's some behaviors that we don't want you to do, but here are the types of things we expect you to do to enrich our family uh, by using these devices and by using this connectivity. Completely changed the narrative. It completely changed the tone in our family because we've both agreed to this contract. And we even state in there, when, when we get off track, when something goes wrong, when we find that we have not held our end of the contract, what do we do about it? And we just say, you know, we're going to have a conversation and we're, we may take a little break from our device for a little bit, and, and then we'll try again. So it's a very positive uh, environment, but it sets up the, the roles and the responsibilities for good digital citizens. Gosh, and it's so, I mean, without this being in any way a, a gospel-centric idea, there are so many gospel principles in what you just described, <laughs> you know, in setting expectations, making promises, and then when we break them, you know, having having a little bit of a break and figuring things out and restarting. And my gosh, Richard, the, the world needs this so much. I am super excited to read the book. I can't wait. So this is just awesome. And uh, the book is launching really this month. It's This is a a brand new book. If people want to learn more about the book, is there a, a, a site or a, a social media page they should go to? So anybody can uh, certainly visit my website. It's innovativelearning.com. So if you go to innovativelearning.com, there's information about, about the book. Uh, uh, also a series of, of videos there that might be helpful that, that uh, address these topics and some other information about uh, learning and technology that might be of interest. I think your whole life has led up to this and not only your life, uh, you know, necessarily your job and and your career and everything else that you've done, but also being a father and uh, you're just the right guy for the right time for this book. I'm super excited for it. Great conversation today, Richard. We are going to wrap up uh, with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, uh, Richard, what does being a member of the church mean to you? The hardest question that you uh, that you ask on here, especially from having listened to a number of your other episodes, and you've gotten some great <laughs> answers to that question. Uh, you know, 
for me, I think it's about um, sharing light. And I have felt recently, uh, particularly given the events of this past year, not just the pandemic, the, the uh, amount of suffering and challenges that we've seen, um, the world is in need of light uh, at, at a level that that is is greater than than you know maybe I've ever seen in my in my lifetime. And so I think uh, that's that's our job is to is to share that light and to have a perspective that uh, rises above the challenges uh, that we see around us and not to minimize them or not to, uh, uh, pretend that we, we don't need to be making things better in the world around us, but, um, but a, a hope and, and a light that can give us the strength and energy to fight those tough fights and to do the hard work of making the world around us a better place. Awesome. The book is called Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. He is a husband. He is a father. He is former CIA. That's so awesome to be able to say. Uh, also a former presidential appointee and uh, now uh, a published author. Richard Collada, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sean. It's always fun to have a talk with you. And my special thanks to Richard Kulata. I was so impressed with Richard. I could have talked to him for hours. He was so easy to talk to. Plus, such a nice guy. He's just a good man making a big difference in the world. I'm very excited to read the book. Richard, thank you so much. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, uh, something kind of fun. It is our Stake Youth Conference. And while I do not work with the youth, I work with the young single adults in our Stake, Uh, they actually invited me to be the opening speaker. So tonight, uh, as I'm recording this, tonight is the opening kickoff, and we're doing a fireside. I get to speak, and we're going to have some music, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, The theme, which is the uh, youth theme, is A Great Work, and there's a beautiful song that Nick Day wrote uh, for this youth theme for the year, and A Great Work it's pretty inspiring, you know, when you think about what a great work is. And and so they invited me to speak, and they actually invited me to meet with a bunch of the youth for me to ask questions about what they wanted to hear. And I love that. I loved asking them, what do you guys want to know? And there were several questions, you know, about, hey, where am I going in my life? And I want to know kind of what, what I should be working on, or what does the future hold, or where I should prioritize. But then one particular young man raised his hand and he said, what is the work? When we say a great work, what is the work? And in my head, I immediately thought, oh, well, that's an easy one. I'll be able to address that. No problem. And since I had been preparing for that talk, I kept thinking through, how do I easily tell them this is what the work is? So I started doing some deep dives and started thinking about, all the different things we refer to in the church as the work. Well, there's uh, getting the Book of Mormon out there. That's the work. But why do we get the Book of Mormon out there? Well, they're sharing the gospel generally. That's the work. But why do we share the gospel? There's the temple and all the work for the, the dead that we do. And that's the work. And I, I started thinking, well, there are lots of things that we refer to as the work. Our families, 
That's the work. And we know that a marvelous work and a wonder. And that's, uh, you know, bringing the gospel out and the second coming and the redemption of the dead and the sharing of the gospel and all these things. All of a sudden, it started to feel really big, you know, that we could have the restoration of the restoration of the gospel at this time. All these things. What is the work? And I couldn't get it out of my mind, this question that I kept pondering again and again. And so I started thinking back to experiences I've had with all of these things. Things I understand about the Restoration, experiences in the temple, getting the Book of Mormon out, sharing the gospel, uh, you know, even helping people find the gospel and leading them to baptism. And once I got through thinking through all these experiences, suddenly I realized that the actual experience meant much less to me than the people. The people for whom I was going through the temple, or when I went through for myself, and the people that were there with me, or my family, the family members, or when I've shared the Book of Mormon or been a part of that experience, it was much more about the person who received the Book of Mormon. And that's when it really hit me, and I know this might sound obvious to so many of you, but it really dawned on me that we are the work, that the work is you and it's me. It's all about people, and the gospel keeps coming back to people. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the motion. It is about the people. We share the gospel to bless the lives of people, and we share the Book of Mormon to enhance the lives of people, and we go to the temple to bless the lives of people, both here and those who have passed. It is all about people. And then, duh, I suddenly realized the great scripture that talks about, behold, this is my work and my glory is to bring to pass the eternal life and immortality of man. It's about that eternal life and immortality of man, of people. And what a blessing it is. So I'm excited to sit down tonight with our amazing youth from our stake and to share this this message, this revelation that I had about the importance of people in the work and focusing it. And I just, I need to do a better job than that. Sometimes I think of things in terms of, I got to check that off my list, or I got to reach out to that person because it's a calling or it's an assignment. No, I got to focus on the people. That's what Heavenly Father does for each of us. He loves us so much. He sent his son. We have a redeemer. We have a savior. It is because of us. We are the work. I am the work. You are the work. And everyone we serve, they are the work. So grateful to be a part of that work. I'm thankful for our church, which has a beautiful structure that allows us to participate more fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for checking in again. Uh, this week, and as a reminder, one more time, we will be off for three weeks. No new episodes for the next three weeks, but then we will be excited to come back and bring you all new guests. It's going to be wonderful. I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>